are listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, Episode 7, John Hernandez. Ethnic Life Story Trail of Trees is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. The last time I drank, my wife said she was leaving me. I faced nine years in the state penitentiary and losing my job, as well as my family. Like any alcoholic, I was making promises, but I was really insincere. I was really scared. She left that night and took my daughter with her. I was sitting in a chair. I put the barrel of a rifle in my mouth and was going to squeeze the trigger. God intervened in my life. The next thing I knew, I was on the telephone talking to someone from Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know how I got from the chair to the telephone. I don't know how I got this guy's number. He was talking to me. That was a miracle in my life. We are so fragile. We all have so much to fear. No matter how big we are or how much we have done in our lives, we all have something to fall back on, and that's the miracles of God. I see miracles every day. I am a miracle every day. People don't realize all that gunk that's happened in my life. All the prejudice, all the beatings, all the stabbings and the shootings, the fights and the arguments, the stress, the thoughts of suicide, losing my friends in Vietnam, seeing my best friend die in front of me, killing people in battle, unbelievable stress and pain that takes a toll on your body. It's not a pain you can put a band-aid on. You can't rub cream on it. It's a pain way down in your heart, way down in your gut. You can't sleep. Thoughts are turning over and over in your head. Your mind is racing 10,000 miles an hour and your heart's beating. You're coming to the end of your rope. What do you do? Do you put a gun to your head and kiss the pain goodbye? Are you a coward for doing that? Or are you a coward for not pulling the trigger? I don't know. I'm not a coward. I've proven myself many times in battle, in everyday life. I take chances every day. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to go out there and try something new, but then again, I'm not afraid anymore either, the kind of fear and insecurity I did have. Now I have self-worth and self-esteem. I've got a good spiritual program. I know there are people out there I should care about. Many people are in a limelight once or twice in their lives. I've been on a TV show for four years. I've been on radio. I've been in the newspaper. I've got certificates galore. I've been man of the year. I've been Prevention Family of the Year. Everybody in this town knows me or knows of me. I've been lucky that God has shown me that there is a place out there in this world, in this life, for me. I have so much that has been given to me that I want to give back. I feel good about what I do in my life. 
When I talk to people, I talk about my life. I talk about the drugs and alcoholism, but I don't talk to them about my parents. They were tough on us, but they had to be because we were crazy children. John Ernest Hernandez is the name I was born with. My dad wanted to preserve his initials J-E-H in the family, so I am John Ernest and my brother is James Edward. I was named after St. John. I was born on St. John's Day, June 24, 1950. My grandfather gave me a tribal name. My tribe is Mescalero, of the Apache Nation. My tribe is not a huge tribe. We have about 2,000 members. My Apache name means two bears. I was born in an elevator of the Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. There was a nurse with my mother. It was a rainy afternoon. My dad's name is Joseph Ernest, and my mother's name is Juanita Contrea. My dad was born in the 1920s on the Mescalera Reservation. My mother was born in the late 1920s or early 1930s on the White Mountain Reservation. I love my parents tremendously. They were young when they got married and had children. They had to adapt to that. There's no manual given to new parents which tells them how to parent. You raise them to the best of your ability. My dad's mom died when he was nine years old. He had to quit school to help support the family. His brothers and sisters got an education while he was out working to support them, 13 or 14 years old driving tanker trucks, trying to accept the responsibilities of a man while still being a child. My father's father was a steel worker. My mother's father was a master carpenter, master electrician, and master blueprint maker. He had three companies. Of course, he drank them all up. He and my mother's mother raised me while I was a child. It was rough on my parents having such responsibility to bear when they were so young and trying to learn how to be adults themselves. I admire my mom and dad for the job they did for us. My mom was a very handsome young woman. She is about 5 foot 2 inches tall. My dad is slender and about 5 foot 11 and very dark complexioned. My mother is also dark, but not as dark as my dad. My complexion is like hers, a reddish-brown tan. She had dark hair, dark eyes, and a nice smile. They were a very handsome, native-looking couple. My mom is now in her 70s, short and chunky, with short salt-and-pepper hair. She wears glasses. My dad is still slender, has no teeth, and is going blind. My dad is a very big kidder. He likes to play jokes and laugh. My mom is a very somber woman. She is the woman of the house. She will laugh, but she wasn't a very touchy-feely, emotional-type person like my dad. She was brought up very strict. She and my dad were opposites. They say opposites attract. I'm a lot like my dad, and people say I look like he did when he was younger. We were poor, but my mom was a very unique individual. She would always say, no matter how bad we have it, there is always somebody else in a worse situation. We need to share whatever we have, because one of these days we might be in that same situation. Mom has the same ability that my grandma and my younger sister Dolores have. She can communicate with animals. I walked into the kitchen one day and said, I've never seen that dog before. Mom said, well, I just found him the day before yesterday. He came into the house and he was starving. Now look what he can do. She took a piece of cookie and said, dance, dance. The dog stood up on its hind legs and turned in little circles and then took the tortilla from her hand. I've seen her walk up to barking, snarling dogs at a junkyard and talk to them, and they'll get just as quiet as can be. These women have no fear of animals. They just relate. I'll tell you a good story. My parents came to visit me in Springfield, which they don't do often. They had a parakeet at the time. 
My mom loved this parakeet. I forget its name. She gave every animal a name, and once named, it became a pet. She told my brothers and sisters to feed the parakeet while she was gone. They came for two weeks. In the middle of the first week, I get a phone call. It was my sister. We talked for a little bit, and then I asked, Why did you call? What's the emergency? She replied, We want you to tell mom that her bird died. I said, I'm not going to tell my mother that her bird died under your care. It's your responsibility to tell your mother. Don't tell her over the phone. She'll be home in a week, so you figure out how you're going to tell her. When the time comes, we take my mom home. We walk in the room, and there's this parakeet in the cage. My mom walks up to the parakeet and starts talking to it. She turns around and says, Where's my parakeet? This is not my parakeet. What those idiots did was take the dead parakeet and freeze it. Then they carried it around in a shoebox to every pet store in San Antonio to try to find another parakeet, which looked just like my mom's pet, to try to fool her. Mom looked at me, and I said, Mom, your bird died. They didn't want to tell you, but it didn't work. Boy, she looked at them with that look. What did you do? They cried, We didn't do anything. The bird just died from a broken heart. Mom said, I don't believe that. We didn't do anything. We didn't tease it. We just came in one day and it was dead. Then she started laughing and said, What makes you think I wouldn't have found out this was not my bird? How long did you carry the dead one around? They said, A week. We just got this bird yesterday. I had symptoms of polio when I was a child. My grandpa and grandma took me, and they worked with my paralysis and did all kinds of stuff to me. They raised me. Grandpa was a very quiet man, but when he said something, the whole world stopped to listen. My grandpa never weighed more than 130 pounds. My grandma was around 350 pounds. They always loved each other and respected each other. We ate every morning together at the table. We ate oatmeal with cinnamon sticks in it, refried beans, and a piece of French bread sliced down the middle and broiled. Grandpa drank coffee with a spoon of Eagle brand milk and pecans that he would cut up and throw in there. For lunch, we would eat refried beans, a piece of meat, and tortillas, and I would get a glass of juice or milk. He would drink up a cup of coffee with a little bit of milk and nuts. For dinner, we would have whatever Grandma cooked. When my grandma passed away, I went to live with my grandpa for a while, and when he got so old, he came to live with us. A lot of people were laborers in San Antonio. We spoke Apache, and we spoke Spanish and English. I seemed to remember always working. I loaded and unloaded trucks. I worked in the valley picking watermelons or cantaloupe. We went up north to hoe peas or pick oranges, grapefruit, and pecans. My dad was a truck driver. We were very poor. I remember not having a lot of things that other people had. We never had a lot of money, but my parents always worked, and we always had food and clothes on our backs. Once, when my dad was down after a car wreck, my mom worked as a cook and a waitress in my uncle's restaurant. Seven of us lived off her tips. My mom never let us down. My dad worked two or three jobs at a time. That's why I say all of my earliest memories are of work. No one asked us to work. They didn't make us work. The three eldest children, we just knew that we had to contribute to make our family survive. We were part of the family, and our obligation was towards our family. Family means even more to Native people than to Europeans. Child-rearing is done by, quote, the whole village. Aunts and uncles and grandparents and neighbors. Everyone takes care of the kids. You spank those who are misbehaving. You feed those who are at your home during mealtime. The first thing that happens if you go to a Native person's home, you are offered coffee. 
Then you are fed. You are made to feel at home. It is polite, and it makes social relations easy. Once you have broken bread with someone, you relax, you talk, and you become friends. I had tons of unhappy experiences when I was a child. When my grandma passed away, she was in this hospital. They wouldn't let us in to see her. We weren't the right color. The hospital had gates. They made us kids sit outside the gates while my mom and dad went in. My grandma died of a blood clot that got loose from her leg and went right into her heart. It was 1963, the same year John Kennedy died. My grandma was a jolly person. She called us from the hospital and the radio was going and she was laughing and telling us how good she felt. And then she was gone. And they wouldn't let us in because we were the wrong color. I've had that problem all my life. I started school at five years old. I lived with my grandparents at the time. I was taken by bus to a boarding school where I stayed for 11 months out of the year. It was a Catholic school where the teachers were nuns. I hated them all. After Catholic elementary school, I went to a public junior high school. I played saxophone. My brother and I played in a rock and roll band called the Blue Virgins, a reference to the Virgin Mary. James was the lead singer and I was the backup singer. We didn't get to practice much, so we were terrible. We had a math teacher who felt sorry for us and bought all of our instruments with his credit card. That was the first time I had ever heard of anybody having a credit card. Marvin was my best friend. He was half Mexican and half white. We were going to an all-white school then. The public school we went to was in a rich part of town, and kids would arrive in chauffeur-driven limousines. We were real poor, and my brother and Marvin and I were the three darkest kids in the school. We were always picked on. After Marvin, my best friend was George Morales. He and I palled around together all the time. We were treated like family at each other's homes. He had gorgeous twin sisters that I tried to date all the time, Orlea and Olivia. They married our other best friends. George and I remained best friends all the way through high school and into Vietnam. George died two feet in front of me. He got shot in the eye, and the back of his head was all over the front of me. There were 18 of us that went to Vietnam. I'm the last of the 18. I've had it pretty rough when it comes to relationships and people dying. I've seen a lot of evil. I remember those guys. I try not to think about it. I left high school and joined the army. I got in trouble in the service. I had an argument with a man, and the next thing I know, they shipped me to Vietnam. I got there on May 1st. May 15th, I was already in battle in a place called Hamburger Hill in Airhouse Valley. I was injured and got a purple heart and a bronze star for valor. That was unique. The turning point in my life came later. I was scared. People see war movies and think it's all about bravery. I thought I was a mean man and could handle anything. I had all those media-fed visions of glory. When I arrived in Vietnam, I walked out of the back of the plane, and the first thing I saw was a line of silver coffins against the fence. Some of them were being loaded onto planes. Reality hit me. The second impression was the smell. The jungle smell. The rain. A fear came down on me like a weight on my soul. I had never felt anything like it before. I looked around and everyone looked like they weren't afraid. I couldn't tell anyone I was scared. I felt like I didn't sleep for a month. Everything about Vietnam seemed to hurt you. It felt like a very aggressive place. There was no way to see the beauty of it. Nobody realized how crazy you are when you come out of a war. Nobody stopped and asked us if we were okay. 
Nobody asked if we were having any problems or having any nightmares. Nobody cared about us. We were supposed to be men and buck up. That's insane. You do all the things that we did, and you don't just buck up. You look for some kind of relief. We weren't right in the head, but we fit together perfectly. It was a marriage made in hell. About that time, 1972, I began working with children. That was good, because when I worked with kids, I never drank. It was a good outlet for me. I was dating a girl from England, whose last name was English. She was a school teacher, teaching German school children how to speak English. She asked if I would come to her class and present a Native American program. I'd never done that before, but I got the official okay. I talked to her class about our lifestyle and our ways and our ceremonies and our songs, our dress and our eagle feathers. It's interesting. In Germany, they love Apaches. In the U.S., we're hated because we are fierce warriors and we're seen as hostiles and savages who have to be conquered so that the Europeans could create a land for themselves. But in Europe, they have a different outlook on Native Americans. They see us as victims and as the good guys defending our land and our property and our women and our children. I can see both sides. The children really took us into their hearts, and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the experience of people seeing us as human beings. I had grown up with so much prejudice, not only against the color of my skin, but also against my poverty. People think that because you have no money, you are ignorant. Actually, it's the people who have the money and think that way who are ignorant. I ended up in Springfield in 1975. I got to Springfield on an $85,000 vehicle, a Greyhound bus. When I first came home, I lived with my parents. I hadn't lived with them for so long, it was not easy to go back into that arrangement. It wasn't working out. I had a problem staying with their rules. I finally talked to them about it. I told them I loved them all but I felt like a square peg in a round hole. I left home on December 26, 1975. A friend, Tom Boas, whom I'd met in Europe, and his wife told me about Springfield and asked me to look him up if I was ever in the area. Anyway, I got to Springfield with $5 in my pocket, a duffel bag, and a laundry bag full of dirty clothes. I lived with Tom and Barbara for a while until I got a job. I started working for the Southwest Missouri Indian Center as a bookkeeper. I got an apartment at Grant and Slate. Later, I became the director of the Indian Center. Then I went to work for the Upward Bound program at Drury College under a man named Ross Robinson. I got that job through my work with children. I love being and working with children. I never really got the chance to be a teenager or even a child because we were poor and I was working all the time. I don't want people to think that I blame my parents. I don't. God gives people different lives. That was just my life. I needed to go through all I experienced to get to where I am today, so I don't blame anyone. I met Ross Robinson through the programs I created for children. He had an opening for a head counselor at the Upward Bound program and asked me to consider it. It was just a summer job. I accepted the position, worked the summer, and then the program was dissolved. When I was in Vietnam for two years, I did some awful things. All of the things you learn about in life and on TV and in the newspaper about that war, I did those things. I was a young kid and afraid. I've been afraid all my life. I drank to hide that fear. I was a sergeant in Vietnam and I had to make decisions about who lived and who died that day. A lot of people died because I thought I had made the wrong decision. 
I have to live with not only the deaths of my friends and my men, I have to live with the faces of men I killed. When you're young and you're scared and you kill a man, you're looking right into his face. That face stays with you for the rest of your life. I was very conflicted. Was I doing the right thing? The longer I stayed in Vietnam, the meaner I got as a defense mechanism against my fear and my questions. Because I did not know how to handle my fear, I did not know how to handle life. Because I did not know how to handle fear, I failed to meet my goals. I was a failure in my life, and I got deeper and deeper into alcoholism and drug abuse. I ended up living under a park bench for a year. Then I went to live with this crazy guy named Bob Mockingbird. He said, Crazy Horse came to see me this morning and told me to get that Indian guy living in the park and take him to live in my house. So for another year, I lived in this crash house with up to 300 psychotics, drug addicts, alcoholics, and crazy folk at the time. I slept with a 44 Magnum underneath my pillow because you couldn't trust these guys. People slept in the attic, in the basement, everywhere. It was just a crazy, drunken drug party there. Actually, my wife saved my life. She got me away from there. I am married to one of the most unbelievable women in the world. To me, she is not only the person I admire, the person I would like to be like, my role model. She's my friend. She's my lover. She's my confidant. God put this woman in my life because he knew I couldn't take care of myself. She has the patience of an angel, the biggest heart I have ever seen anyone have in my entire life. Not only her, but her whole family her dad, and her mom. I highly respect them and love them. They showed me how to be a loving, caring human being. It's a miracle in my life. It's a love story bigger than Romeo and Juliet. It's a poem that goes on forever, the poetry of love. I can't describe what this marriage has done for me. I would not be the person I am today. I'm known everywhere. I can't go to a restaurant or to a movie that I don't meet someone who knows me because of the work I do and so many people I influence. I'm not just saying that to pat myself on the back. The reasons I do all these things are pretty selfish reasons. One is it keeps me sober. Two is I get all the attention that I probably lacked as a child or thought I lacked as a child. Three, I get to do what most people don't get to do. I get to live my life in the way I want to live my life. I get to make choices every day, and that is due to God and to my immediate family, who actually took me by the hand and showed me how to be a decent person. I worked for Karchmer Iron and Steel crushing beer cans. They would be brought in by the trailer load. I would go through the piles with a magnet and remove all the steel. Then I would shovel the cans under a device called a briquetta, which squashes the aluminum to a certain size required for the recycling process. I worked right next to a furnace, and it was so hot. Every day when I left work, the only thing you could see about me was my eyes. Everything else was black. After Karchmer, I worked for a rendering plant across the street. I did day labor, cleaning bricks, killing chickens, and turkeys. I hated that last job. I did a lot of piddly jobs. I met my wife about that time at a type of farmer's market at Park Central Square one Saturday. A young lady walked up to me and asked, Are you John Hernandez? I said, Well, who wants to know? She told me her name was Jean Holdren. She was a nurse at the Southwest Missouri Indian Center, and she was working as an outside sponsor for one of the native prisoners at the Federal Medical Center. She told me she wanted me to come out there and show them how to drum and sing and how to make drumsticks. I said yes, so I say I met my wife in prison.
Now, I knew a little bit about prison life because I was in the reserves while I was in Springfield. I was an MP, a turnkey, and a prison guard. I had been sent to work as a prison guard in Latuna, a federal prison in Texas, for a while. I also worked at a prison in El Paso. So I went to the Federal Medical Center with Jean and did my program. I also did things with her occasionally at the Indian Center, but we never really dated. I got into an argument with another guy after work one day, and we had a fight. In the process, I broke my tooth. When the pain became more than I could bear, I went to the Indian Center to see what they could do for me. Jean worked there, and so did my sister-in-law. Now, I am not a man who's afraid very often. My courage has been tested in battle. But I hate dentists. I hate them with a passion because I'm allergic to coconut, codeine, and pain. Jean took me to the dentist and paid the $25 to have the dentist extract my tooth. Jean said she could hear me screaming all over the front of the building, and the dentist hadn't even started to work on me yet. She felt so sorry for me that she said, Why don't I take you home to stay at my house? So I went home with her, and I've never left. We never really had a date. A year later, I asked her to marry me. I was 29. We got married at the Galloway Baptist Church in September 1980 with a preacher, because that's where my in-laws go to church. Then I went home and had a peyote dancer come and marry me in my backyard. I had two marriage ceremonies in one day. I'm really married. I'm happy being married. Most people are not. I'm so elated that I have this woman and daughter in my life. I still think she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. She is unequivocally one of the strongest points in my life. I would not be here today if not for her. The more I see her and the more I hear her, the more solid I want our marriage to be. I have grown physically, mentally, and spiritually into a somewhat decent person through the love and caring of this woman. We'd been married only two years when my daughter was born. I went into the delivery room with Jean. I'd seen babies born before, and it always makes me sick. They were worried about me going down, and I was worried about me going down. Jean did not have a good delivery. She had a lot of bad problems. She had back labor, and I massaged her back for four hours until my hand cramped. I'm a joker, and she was not happy with the jokes I was telling. That all changed when I quit drinking. I've been sober for 11 years now. My whole family has gotten stronger. Jean trusts me more. People don't realize what drinking and drugging can do to a family. I wanted to be a scientist. I was always interested in science. Alcohol kept me from my goal. It became a problem for me. I've been sober for a while, so I hope I've taken care of that problem. When people first talk to me, they have a different opinion of what I went through to get to where I am today. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. Then I wanted to be an executive. My failure to do so was due to my shortcomings, feeling inadequate and very alone. I didn't feel I was worthy of attaining these goals. I had my friends and my family around me, but in so many ways I didn't feel I fit into either of those circles. I drank to fit in, to be able to say I'm a macho man. I thought I had to be a rough, tough type of guy because I thought that was the way the world was. It's not. It created a lot of problems for me, particularly health problems. More importantly, it made me feel alone. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. I drank even after I was married. It was bad for Jean. She continued working. At one point, I had to decide whether to stop drinking or lose my family and go to prison on weapons charges for nine years. My personal life was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If I was out working and doing what I was supposed to do, my life was fine. But when I was home, it was completely different. 
I had to change. That was pretty dramatic. Usually, people with my disease go through three or four divorces and 18,000 jobs. I started doing more work with problem children because it kept me sober and made me happy. I started working with children's homes. I started doing a lot more extracurricular activities that kept me away from the bars. And I started hanging around people who really did something. Because of that, I had a TV show for four years called Stone Soup Cafe for PBS. I started working with the federal government. The unseen hand of God has guided my life. I've had this job at Bass Pro for almost 18 years. I've gone from packing boxes to working in the print shop to stocking to working in the mailroom and now working in the education department and the museum. Now I'm able to help more people. I work with nonprofit organizations, with youth offenders, with adult offenders, with alcohol and drug people, working with children. All of these things were unexpected. My whole life has been unexpected. I worked for NATO for two and a half years when I was in the Army. I've been all over the world. I've talked to close to three million children. My religion has always come into play in my life. I was the only kid in the bunch who would walk clear across town to get to church. It's always been a part of my life. Sometimes I neglected it. Sometimes I didn't want to be there. When I was down and out, when I needed it the most, that's the only thing I could go to. After I came back from Vietnam, my grandpa told me, there is something wrong with your true self, not just your body, but your spirit. Go, sing, sing the traditional songs. Get back in touch with who you are. Accept the things that happen to you. That is a part of life. Learn from your experiences. Grow from them. Let God guide you through this. I am no longer a Christian. I'm not saying it's wrong. I believe our native beliefs. I believe in one God. I believe in the power of God. I believe in miracles, angels. People call them different names, but I've had it up to my neck with organized religion. I had bad experiences as a child with my Catholic beliefs. A lot of Native people and Mexicans are Catholic because of the colonization of their land by the Spaniards, who were Catholic. We have a lot of ceremony in our religion. We sing and pray and dance. We get together with other Native people as often as we can. We do have organized religions, but basically it's more of an individual spirituality, an individual relationship with God. We believe God wants us to be happy, to be joyous. Some churches leave out all the music but the voice, which is the instrument that God gave to us. We believe God also gave us drums and other instruments to utilize. I play drums and sing. I'll tell you about the drums. Drums represent our lives. They are round, but not perfectly round, just like our lives. The drum also has two sides made of hide. They represent the animals we are related to. The wooden frame represents the other living things we are related to, like grasses and trees. Every living thing has a spirit and is related to every other living thing. We're made up of the same molecules as the stars. That makes us related. Because of our relationship, we have to respect everything. The straps that hold the two heads of the drum together are our relationships with one another, with loved ones, with strangers, with ourselves, and with God. They are really thin, but they are really strong, because they hold everything together. We are not solitary animals. We are meant to have communication with one another. Every now and then, one of those strings breaks, and what we have to do is wet it down, tie it in a knot, and mend the string. That's the way we fix our relationships. 
Sometimes letting a relationship go is a way of mending it. Sometimes when we are singing and beating the drums, we put a hole in one side. We don't stop the singing or the dancing. We flip that drum over and use the other side. That's the way our lives are. Whenever we make a mistake or whenever something happens that's not right, we don't let our lives stop. We stop, we turn ourselves around, and we keep going. When we have the chance, we come back and mend the hole. We make amends in our lives. We mend the drum, but the dance keeps going. The beat of the drum is like our mother's heartbeat heard in the womb. It's the only sound that is not alien to us. It is a natural sound to us. We are born with that sound in our minds. It's like coming home. The drum heads are held on by little strings because that is the way God holds things up, by little strings. It's all we're looking for, for our lives to be of value, for our work to be of value. If I value my work, if it means something to me, then what I produce will be of value to you because you are a part of me. That's what the drum means. It's a sacred object. A friend of mine who is going to Drury College called me up and asked me if I would be a part of our four-person panel about the treatment of minorities in the United States. I agreed and went to Drury. It seemed like everyone was walking on eggshells about answering questions about United States government. I don't care. You ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. They asked me, and I answered. The treatment of the Native Americans by the United States government is not what you think. I started telling them about all the atrocities that happened in the past and are still happening. About three weeks later, I get a phone call from one of the people who was there. He said, we're doing a TV show on cultural diversity. We'd like you to be on the board and to become one of the producers. So, for four years, we had a diversity show. This area is basically Caucasian. The show was designed to show how Japanese, Chinese, Hispanic, Native American, all these people have contributed to make Springfield what it is today. It is not just built by Europeans. Through that show, I got to meet a lot of interesting people. It was a boost to my nonprofit career, because now I work with detention programs. I make no bones about the fact that I am a recovering alcoholic, because I want people to know the perils and the pitfalls of using alcohol and drugs. People don't realize that only 4 out of 100 alcoholics survive. I've worked for Bass Pro for almost 20 years. I started working in the Bass Pro Museum a year and a half ago. Now I'm getting paid for doing what I was doing years before that for free. I created this job with my boss and her manager. I explained what I could do for them and what I could not do. So far, everything I said I could do has come true. Because of what I've done in my life, they trusted me and gave me the opportunity to do what I'm doing today. Whether I lose this job tomorrow, I will be able to say to people I actually had a job that I loved and enjoyed. I work for the Department of Mental Health on their drug and alcohol board. I've done that for almost nine years. I'm the oldest member they've got. Through my work at the Department of Mental Health, I've become involved in the Center for Substance Abuse in Washington, D.C., they started sending me to training classes in D.C. and even provided scholarships for me to be able to attend. I was even paid $900 for going. We don't do things exactly the way our ancestors did. What we now have is what remains of those customs. Each nation or tribe has their own customs and their own language. What the Europeans did was put us on reservations, kill our elders, who would have passed down our customs, and threatened us with bodily harm or death if we did our ceremonies. Even the drum was outlawed at one time. 
We lost so much. We are trying to save what we have left. When I was going to school in the 1950s, I was beaten if I spoke my language. It wasn't until 1972 or 1973 that our civil rights movement started and we were allowed to speak our language. By that time, many Native people had lost their language and their traditions. Taking children away from their parents for 11 months out of the year, indoctrinating them with European ideas and beliefs, punishing them for exhibiting any signs of Native traditions, those are very effective ways of destroying a culture. Native people ended up ignorant, ignorant of where they came from, and really ignorant of their fit within European culture. The word Indian is a form of genocide. By classifying all Native Americans as one, you destroy their unique identity. When a statement is made that, quote, Native Americans have their independent nations, it is actually false. We're still citizens of the United States, whether we like it or not. I am a citizen of the Apache Nation and a member of the Mescalero tribe. Using the word Indian destroys my unique identity as a Mescalero, so it's a form of genocide. When we were sent to the reservations, we lost our pure bloodlines. I know three boys who are 100% native, but have seven different native bloodlines in them. The government won't let them claim themselves as Indians at all. That's a form of genocide. Native people don't like it. Other people don't care. They don't care because the federal government owes us, according to our treaties. If we die off, no one has to honor those treaties. They honor treaties for every other country, but not for us. We are American citizens. I have had to fight this fight all my life. I've had to fight people's fear of the unknown. I've concluded that the only way to change the mindset of people is to do what I'm doing today. I go to schools and I educate the children. To rise up in an offensive way would only attract further atrocities to our people, especially our women. I myself come from a very prejudiced way of looking at things. I have changed. What has helped me is going back to my spiritual roots and embracing that way of looking at things. A lot of Native people are lost because they don't go back to their spirituality. What my elders taught me was how to act. I misinterpreted that as being set in stone. They were just giving me advice. I was pretty radical and I wanted to change things. I got pushed down and slapped around. I got tired of that, so I had to figure out a different way to go about it. I went back to what my grandpa used to say to me. If you want to change the machinery, you change it on the inside, not the outside. Now I find that common ground and then offer to show people my way of life. This is an edited version of Hernandez's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The storykeeper for John Hernandez is Barbara Patterson. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer. <laughs>